You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We are joined today by Dr. Michael Goodman of King's College in London. Dr. Goodman is also the official historian for the British Joint Intelligence Committee. And in that role, he has just written a book that comes out in June of this year, The Official History of the Joint Intelligence Committee, Volume 1, From the Approach of the Second World War to the Suez Crisis. And Dr. Goodman is also an author of several other books on intelligence. Uh, One that I found most interesting was a book he wrote several years ago called Spying on the Nuclear Bear. This is about US and British nuclear intelligence against the Soviet Union. Uh, But today we're going to talk about his most recent research into the JIC uh, and what his findings were. So welcome, Dr. Good, and thank you for being here. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So our our listenership tends to be pretty educated, especially when we talk about intelligence, (laughs) and certainly on the American side, but with the British as well. Uh, Most everyone probably has heard of the SIS, MI5, MI6, perhaps not the Joint Intelligence Committee. What is the JIC? The JIC is a committee that goes back to 1936, um, set up to remedy the lack of efficiency, the lack of organisation in the British intelligence machine, but also to stop the duplication that was going on in the production of intelligence reports. If we go back to the 1930s, it was a military committee designed to serve the chiefs of staff, designed to produce uh, military assessments, and it comprised the heads of the intelligence departments of the three branches of the military. Um, It's evolved massively since then, but actually it has remained very similar to its original construction. In in the British system, you talk about in the book that there are three strands of intelligence, three kinds of intelligence that were brought together for this committee. You have the military intelligence we've just talked about. What other kinds of intelligence were brought together for the JIC? I think the interesting question in a sense is how, how someone in the 1930s would have defined intelligence. And someone sitting in London in the 1930s would perhaps not have defined it in the way that we do today. So there was military intelligence, which was almost exclusively capabilities. What are the German guns like? How many do they have? Then you have political or diplomatic reporting, which perhaps wouldn't have been seen as intelligence at that time. You know, what are the intentions of the German government? Um, And then you had the slightly more secret, mysterious side, which was conducted by SIS, MI5, 
which was very much kept separate from everything else that went on uh, and was designed to, to run agents abroad but also to look at subversion back at home in England. There's, there's no, it's not a coincidence that 1936 was the beginning of the development of this committee. What about, I mean, this might be an obvious question, but let's make sure we spell it out. What about 1936 or the mid-1930s perhaps uh, is the impetus that led to the creation of this committee? Well, I think, ironically, almost in a sense, it, it was not necessarily the, the threat of Nazism on the continent that led to this being produced. It, it was much more a feeling that if the war machine had to get ready for any sort of conflict, whether it was Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, uh, what was going on in Spain at that time, then there had to be the best possible intelligence gathered for planning purposes. It wasn't specifically towards the German threat. And so the idea was really twofold, that you had to have intelligence in a coordinated fashion to make sure that the planners had the best information possible, but also to ensure that there wasn't duplication going on. And, and at that time, the three branches of the military very much worked independently from one another. They didn't share intelligence, they didn't share agents. And so lots of duplication, uh, massive loss of resources was going on. So this was an effort to try and make sure that this was brought under one place, essentially. I want to talk a little bit about writing this book, because you had to get lots of clearances to get you did research and, cl and classified documents. Uh, even to come talk to me, you had to go through a couple hoops uh, to be able to discuss this information. Um, and, and we talked earlier about the fact that a lot of Americans may not know a lot about the JIC, but a lot of people, even in Britain, may not have heard of this committee before a couple years ago. What really brought about the idea of writing the official history of the JIC? I think the JIC is different to the other agencies. It's less well known, but its records are much more readily available. So in the archives, since, since probably the mid-1990s, JIC records have been released, and they try to release them in accordance with the 30-year rule. So there's a lot of stuff that's out there, but it's not very well known. And it was really the, the invasion of Iraq and the intelligence that surrounded that that brought the JIC into the, the public forum, public debate. But the actual uh, rationale behind its uh, creation, I think, partly goes back to the authorization, authorized histories of MI5 and SIS, the fact that they existed, but also a feeling that the JIC was not well understood. It needed to be uh, better understood in the public. It needed to have a much better grounding in to what was going on. And I think that partly reflects what it is. It's, it's the senior most assessment body. It doesn't have the kind of sexy spy stories that might be attached to SIS or MI5. But in other ways, it's more important because it's the intelligence which underpins policy. So I think it has a, it has a very vital role to play. I, when, when I was in grad school taking classes, you know, a good decade ago at this point, um, we were always warned against official histories. So we're always warned against organizational histories. Um, is there a tricky part when it comes to separating ourselves from your employer, in this case, which is the, the committee itself, and wanting to do real history? Want to actually tell a story without any potential influence when you're publishing something? Yeah, for, for my first book, uh, which you mentioned, which turned into Spying on the Nuclear Bay, I, I looked at a lot of the uh, post-war JIC files, and I was a, a great advocate of the system. I thought it worked very well bringing together people from the policy world and the intelligence world. So I came to it perhaps in a slightly unbiased way, I suppose. I, I was favorably disposed towards it. Um, but the way that the contracts are written, the way that official history is run, is that I have total access over... Uh, the files and how I write about them and although they have to, the, the book has to be vetted for security reasons it cannot be vetted for my historical interpretations uh, and so I had no problems in that sense but I but it's an interesting point about official histories 
more broadly and, and how they're viewed. The government's view of them is that they are the first attempt by an academic to go and see what's in the archive. If you think about historiography, this is the first drafting of history in a sense. Um, and certainly at times I felt like that. All of the case studies which I look at in the book are quite well documented outside. There's a lot of intelligence material that has been released on almost all of them. There's a lot of secondary stuff that's been published. So one of the, the, the pressures I constantly had was, you know, what's new here? What is there that's new from the classified domain which hasn't been revealed? You know, and, and what can I do to help academia, in a sense, understand what goes on? You talk a bit, a bit in the book about the difficulties, especially when you're dealing with the, the, the documents themselves and, and under, really understanding um, complicated, things that complicate, complicated factors. Uh, and one of the most interesting ones to me was the, the idea that how do you demonstrate? You, you can find out intelligence policy. You can find out intelligence analysts. You can even find out finished product. But how do you actually demonstrate where that intelligence has made an impact on whether it's policymaker or military policymaker decisions? Like, that's that next step that's very difficult to do. How do you go about that? I think it's absolutely the most crucial question, and it's also, as you say, the most difficult. Before writing this, I'd had in my head that I would have case studies and I would see the way in which intelligence was directed, the way in which intelligence was collected, the assessments that were produced, and then the impact on policy. It's almost an iterative stage. But as it turned out, working out or trying to identify where it had had an, an impact was, was almost impossible. Um, throughout the 20 years covered in this book, the, the JIC was a Chiefs of Staff subcommittee. So in a number of instances, you can see where a JIC assessment is passed to the Chiefs of Staff. The Chiefs of Staff comment on it. Uh, sometimes they send it back for revision. Often they will just say approved. But that's very different to saying, well, you know, what impact did it actually have? In some examples, we can see that impact, particularly during times of war and during times of crisis. And so I think the Second World War, there are a number of instances where you can see the, the assessments actually were very, very important. And equally, I think you can see in the Cold War at times of crisis, you can see once something had happened that the JIC played a role. But I think in those other gaps, and particularly with the Soviet Union, there's this kind of existential threat in a sense. You know, what, what value did JIC assessments place? Very hard to know, particularly because they were very long, uh, not especially interestingly written. But also the way in which records and archives are actually stored, it meant that it was the JIC's file copy that was the one that is preserved. It's not necessarily the one that the Chiefs of Staff or the Prime Minister would have received. So it's very hard to know, actually. So the 20-year period you talked about begins uh, with a conflict that a lot of intelligence agencies paid attention to, or at least the ones that, that were thinking a little bit ahead of time, was the Spanish Civil War. Um, and the war itself between the two factions of the fascists and the Republicans mattered far less than the fact that it was a proxy war for you know, not only the, the Germans, but the Italians, and then later on the Soviets. Um, is, is this the way that the JIC looked at the Spanish Civil War? Is that the I think the JIC looked at the Civil War in, in, in a very much military way. You know, there, there were no papers produced on who would win the war, what, what would the effect of the war be on relations in Europe. This was very much seen as what can we take away from the military conflict for future military conflicts. And the JIC, in this sense, had, a, had a, an analytical and psychological problem, I suppose you could say. They saw the powers fighting as second-class military powers, and they thought that you could therefore not take away any lessons from those for Germany, for instance, because Germany was a first-class military power. So I think the Civil War itself was very limited in terms of what, what the JIC could take away from it, actually. A lot of the reporting was done by military attaches. Uh, 
how is this problematic? I mean, especially when they're reporting back in reference to their own particular branch of service. I, yeah, and, and I think it's a wider problem that the JRC faced up until the mid part of the Second World War is that the, the people, it had no dedicated team of drafters, it had no dedicated reporting channels into it. So the, the attaché for the, the Air Force, for instance, would report into it, but his reporting would be very much Air Force based because it was for his Air Force masters. You know, it was not objective intelligence as we perhaps would understand it today. Then by, by the late 1930s, there was actually another conflict that could be at least used to understand great powers versus not so great powers, and that's in the, the, the Pacific region when Japan and China go to war in the late 1930s. Um, is this something that the JIC paid attention to as well? Uh, very limited coverage, really limited to military capabilities. Again, they looked at the China uh, conflict, really to see what lessons you could take away from that from air, from air warfare. And this reflected an argument that was going on, which, which was also looked at in terms of the Spanish context, between the Air Force and the Admiralty in terms of aerial bombardment. What was the best way to defend against aerial bombardment? Was it through more ships with more guns or was it through an air force attacking those ships? So both conflicts were very much seen through that prism and, uh, and any wider connotations were totally ignored. Now the JIC doesn't predict Hitler's, not only, he, they, his rise is not the issue. They don't predict his intentions, his capabilities uh, when the Second World War begins. Uh, but you argue that's not necessarily fair to criticize them for that. Why is that? Yeah, it's a good point. And I think it's because you have to understand what the JRC was. You know, on the one hand, it was the senior most assessment body. But on the other hand, it was totally geared up towards military masters. It, it had military masters. It had military remit. Um, at this point, it was reliant on the chiefs of staff saying, we would like a paper on topic X. The JRC did not commission its own papers. So therefore, it was never asked and it never volunteered to write one on German intentions. And I think it's, uh, it's something I grapple with slightly, thinking, well, you know, should they have gone beyond their remit to look at what Hitler was doing? And I decided that that probably was unfair, uh, given its membership, but also given the fact that it had this overwhelming military focus. You write a lot in the book on several different occasions about the relationship between the JIC and their American counterparts, or not lack of American counterparts. When does this intelligence relationship begin? It really begins with uh, a year or so into the war with Donovan and also with uh, Raymond Lee, who was the military attaché in London. And, and Lee was really an advocate of the British system and tried to encourage uh, his military masters back in Washington that this should be something that should be emulated. Whether it was the JIC model itself, he, he seemed quite a fan of that, but whether it was really the coordinated approach to intelligence more broadly. And that took some time to really come into effect, and I think it was Donovan's appointment by President Roosevelt and his mission to London that actually began a change. And there was actually an American JIC mm -hmm. created in early 1942. Yeah. Is that based on the British model almost exclusively? Yeah, there were two. There, there was an American JIC that sat in Washington, and there was also a British JIC that sat in Washington. Um, the American one was built on the British model. It, it, it was designed to fuse the different elements of the American military, uh, again, really to serve to ensure that intelligence was best coordinated for policy planning for, for the masters. Uh, the British JIC in Washington was designed to really work as a liaison body with the Americans. But from the records, it seems that it had quite limited uh, involvement and, and actually didn't do a, a tremendous deal, actually. One of the things I'm always interested in, and you are as well, is the, this new concept during the Second World War 
of scientific intelligence, uh, something that hadn't existed before because for many reasons, but one of the biggest ones that science's influence on technology didn't really become uh, that sealed together until this time period. You didn't have a lot of technologies based on scientific development. But with things like radar, like the atomic bomb, of course, but other things like operations research and the cryptography, science and technology come together. And so intelligence about science was a key component. And the British and the Americans kind of both realize this mm. at the same time. Uh, you do talk a considerable amount about scientific intelligence in that, uh, in your book. Um, and of course, in particular, we're talking about things like weapons of mass destruction, not just nuclear weapons, uh, in this case, biological and chemical weapons as well. Mm. Um, what were they looking at during the Second World War when it comes to weapons of mass destruction, in particular, biological and chemical weapons? Yes, there, there was great concern about biological and chemical weapons. Um, partly, I think, because it was felt that the, the nuclear program hadn't got very far. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But I think partly also because it was thought that it would be easier. As the war progressed, as the belief grew that the German military were suffering their own decline, that you know it was a matter of time before they caved in, essentially, um, it was thought that actually they would try and resort to to more horrific methods of war to try and stop the invading armies as they spread through Europe. But the atomic question is an interesting one because uh, here was a, uh, an integral aspect of the war effort which the JIC were deliberately excluded. They had no knowledge. Uh, individual members may have done. The chief of SIS, for instance, almost certainly would have known about atomic matters. But as a committee, they would not have known about and did not discuss atomic warfare until the, really the very last stages of the war. Uh, related to that is the, is the question about ultra, which you mentioned, uh, and something which I tried desperately to try and find out, which was uh, at, at what point in the war did those drafting the JIC assessments get access to ultra, and who was cleared on the committee to see it? Um, it appears that several members were cleared before everyone else, but certainly by the midpoint of the war, um, the people drafting the assessments had access to ultra, and the intelligence reports, unsurprisingly, became more sophisticated and more detailed, and unsurprisingly, the JIC became much more central to planning, perhaps as a result. Well, I mean, that's, that's a lot of the ways the Americans did things also, is to have a scientific intelligence branch, a big group doing scientific intelligence that's completely separate from those doing nuclear intelligence. And it you know, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense because you know, one should go with the other. But the, the secrecy concerns about nuclear weapons just overcame any ideas about collaboration. That seems to be exactly the way the British system was designed as well. And you have people that overlap both. I mean, the most, to me, the most famous British scientific intelligence specialist during the time was a British scientist named R.V. Jones, who had his hand in just about everything. Did he work closely with the JIC as well? He had some involvement. Um, off the top of my head, I don't actually recall whether he ever attended meetings, but certainly he was involved with several subcommittees. Um, there was a subcommittee set up in the last parts of the war um, called Bodyline, which was looking towards the V weapons in Europe. Uh, and th th there was actually a disagreement that arose between R.V. Jones and the people on that committee about who should have primacy for running those things. R.V. Jones seems to have fallen out with a lot of other people when it came to uh, his own t territory and people trying to muscle their way in. But certainly the JIC was seen, I think, by the Chiefs of Staff as the place, if you needed to have an interdepartmental view, it was natural that you should go to the JIC and that it should create a subcommittee to look specifically at something. For the Americans, a lot of the compartmentalization for nuclear weapons was a fear that the Germans would find out 
what the Americans were doing or what the British were doing, and they would redouble or triple their efforts to build a bomb, or they would even take their atomic program even more underground. Once it became clear that the Germans didn't have an atomic program, and for the British that came became clear a little earlier than for the Americans, but for everyone, certainly by the end of 1944, it was almost 100% clear that the Germans had no atomic bomb program. Even then, was the JIC brought into the atomic picture overall? The JIC didn't really have very much involvement. There, there was some concern after D-Day that the uh, Germans might resort to radiological weapons, but it was really the, the droppings of the atomic bombs on Japan in uh, August 1945, which led the JIC into the knowledge of the atomic bomb itself. But even then, there was some debate as to how closely they should be involved. The, the chiefs of staff still seem to think this was a, a massive secret to which should be, they should be protected from. Yeah, and in, in your book, you even talk about the fact that even into the early Cold War, there is a separation between basic scientific intelligence and nuclear policy. That doesn't change until Sputnik in 1957, when and the Americans are, are guilty of this also. Is, is Sputnik was a big wake-up call. It's, oh, finally, we need to integrate all these things together. Uh, but it takes time. Uh, you just mentioned D-Day, which I think is a, an interesting part of uh, this book, because for the overlord uh, planning, uh, the JSC played a pretty significant role uh, in that planning, and essentially it was uh, the British went to them and asked, there are certain preconditions that have to be met before we even consider this kind of an invasion. Uh, what were some of these preconditions? I mean, some of them range from the very simple, the weather conditions, but others range from how well have the Germans swallowed the, the deceptive plans as to where the invasion will actually take place. So some of the JRC's most important work actually was it was almost counterintelligence in a sense. It was making sure the plans weren't known to the other side. It was looking at what knowledge the Germans might have of Allied plans and ensuring that this continued very much in secret and that the Germans would be misled as to where the invasion would take place. And the way it sounded almost is that the invasion wasn't going to happen until they had blessed it off, until they had said, these preconditions have been met. Now you can actually go ahead and, and use this, uh, this deception plan effectively to make the invasion work. I think that's not that's not much of an exaggeration, actually. I think the, the assessments that the JIC produced for the Chiefs of Staff were really hugely important as to the decision as to when the uh, attack would actually take place. Um, and what that really reflects, I think, is how well the JIC's standing within the British government, within the war planning machinery, had evolved by 1944. You know, within eight years, it had moved from uh, a very, very peripheral organisation, which no one really took seriously and no one really listened to, to a committee which was absolutely at the heart of war planning and the defeat of Nazi Germany. Does that carry over to the post-war period? I think it does to an extent. I think the, the great difference between the wartime and the post-war period is, is almost this shift. If, again, if someone were asked to define what they, were, what they meant by intelligence at this time, wartime was about capabilities. It was looking at where the Germans would go next and what they might do. Uh, post-war increasingly, particularly as the Soviet Union became the primary focus, began to be much more about intentions and trying to work out what the Soviet government might do. And I, and I think it's there where the committee almost struggled for a sense because it, it was restricted and constrained by its military uh, reporting channels. But much like the United States, where after the war, everything was down, you know, downsized and there was a lot of dismantling of the national security apparatus. In the United States, there's a complete dismantling of the intelligence apparatus. That doesn't happen to the JIC. They survived the war, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and perhaps that's one of the greatest success stories of it. You know, things like SOE were disbanded and were, were re reabsorbed into other places. The JIC carried on and it carried on in very much the same way. Uh, in January 1945, uh, the committee's chairman and secretary, really looking towards the post-war world, produced quite a detailed report called the Intelligence Machine, which very much placed the JRC at the centre of British intelligence. Its coordinating function, it was thought, was crucial to how the system would focus. And this was really based on the belief that as uh, money would begin to become tighter, as budgets would be reduced, actually the need for intelligence would grow because you would have no other means of knowing what might happen in the future. You write about this in the book where there's almost massive organizational growth in the, in the late 1940s with creations of subcommittees and then subcommittees on top of other subcommittees. Uh, you, you, you would think that when the war ends, you'd go the opposite direction. But there was a realization by the British that you needed to not only reorganize the JIC for post-war world, but strengthen it in many considerations. Yeah, I think if you can talk about one characteristic of the post-war period, it is that if you have a problem to be solved, you create a subcommittee to do that. And the JIC subcommittees, as you say, grew and grew and grew. Some, some of them existed for a very, very long time. Uh, some of them existed for a very short period to deal with a very specific uh, role. And I think this reflected the JIC's growing standing in Whitehall and the, and the British government at this time, which was reflected in extent to how the membership also grew and expanded. So uh, just prior to the war, the Foreign Office became chairman of the JIC, and this ensured really that there was a military focus, but also a political input into what was going on. And that continued into the post-war period when colonial matters became more important and, and members of the colonial uh, departments got involved, but, but as the committee's remit and responsibilities grew too. For the first year or two after the war ends, the JIC is operating independently of any cooperation from across the Atlantic in the United States. There really is no uh, American equivalent. Uh, with 1947, you have the creation of the CIA. Uh, allows for, at least presents the opportunity for a better cooperation between the United States and the UK. What is the nature of this relationship when the, when the CIA is founded? Are there difficulties surrounding having a close-knit relationship with the United States? Is the creation of the CIA allowing for this broader cooperation like you saw during the war? I, the Anglo-American relationship is one of the most fascinating questions in this. And of course, people have written extensively about the special relationship. What was interesting for me was to see how in a 10-year period, or probably even a five-year period after the war, the pendulum swung almost entirely from London to Washington. So at the end of the war, the JIC, British Intelligence broadly, saw themselves as the senior partners. You know, They were the masters to which the Americans would sit at their knees to learn how to do this thing. The British very much saw the Americans as slightly, they should be wary of them for security reasons. But within five years, by 1950, certainly, that pendulum had swung, and, and, and British Intelligence, the JIC included, were desperately trying to regain and retain access to American secrets. Well, and that was difficult in some respects with certainly atomic weapons uh, with the McMahon Act of 1946 essentially cuts the British out of American nuclear planning and that they, they can't make things easy when you're trying to figure out what the Soviets are doing if you don't know what the Americans are doing from a British perspective. Yeah, absolutely. But, that, but I think that was reflected in other areas too. If you look at the, the JRC, so the liaison relationship uh, through the prism of intelligence analysis, um, there were a massive number of problems. There was an American attached to the JRC in London, and there was there was a Brit attached uh, to the CIA in Washington. 
And it was very much felt that the relationship w was not balanced, that we were giving much more to the Americans than we were getting back. And that really only changed in the early 1950s once uh, Eisenhower came to the presidency, once Alan Dulles became director of Central Intelligence. Uh, and perhaps because of their wartime experiences with Britain, um, the pendulum, in a sense, swung back towards the centre a bit more, and relations grew much more close. And Britain's not only dealing with the question about this relationship, but there's a question about American policy altogether at the beginning of the Cold War. You know, two of the key questions are, of course, what are the Soviets going to do? But also, what are the Americans going to do at the end of the war? What is the real concern with the United States from the British perspective at the end of the Second World War? I think the great concern is whether the Americans would uh, retreat back into isolationism as they did after the First World War, or whether they would maintain a commitment to Europe. If we look at Britain's policies, quite separate to the JRC in the post-war period, uh, they increasingly tried to get close to France to form Western military defence unions, because it was not known simply whether the Americans would come uh, and intervene. But then separate to that, if you look at the JIC assessments, the JIC, at least once a year, probably more often, produced very long, very detailed, fairly unexciting assessments of the Soviet military capabilities, but also Soviet intentions. What might propel the Russians to war and what might war look like? And these were always predicated on the fact that this would be a, a joint Anglo-American defence. Uh, it was never seen that the Soviet Union would want, wage war on the United Kingdom and there would be no US involvement whatsoever. Yeah, that's not formalized until 49, really, with, with the NATO alliance. And that's really, even with the Truman Doctrine and the Marshall Plan, there's no formalized alliance between the United States and the European countries until four years after the war ends. I mean, how does how that uncertainty play into how the JIC is analyzing the post-war world? I think it depends on where we talk about. If we, if we talk about Europe, then Anglo-American relations were thought to be very close, and, and probably even before NATO's signature, it was very much seen as two sides acting as one, essentially. But if we look at other theatres, then, then the relationship was much less close. Um, if we look at uh, Asia, for instance, where lots of the European powers, Britain included, had colonial territories, uh, and we've taken into account the fact that Truman was very much against these European um, imperialist powers, we see a number of great differences, and perhaps that's most visibly exhibited to do with China and the communist success in the Chinese Civil War. The fact that in 1949, when Mao's forces uh, take charge, set up the People's Republic of China, uh, Britain offered them a limited amount of diplomatic recognition, not full diplomatic recognition, but partial. The United States don't, and there's a great debate that goes on in London as to whether Britain should align themselves with America and, and not recognize China, or actually for economic reasons, recognize China. And the decision is that we should recognize China. And that has a really interesting and really important impact on the intelligence relationship. So in the months leading up to the outbreak of the Korean War in the summer of 1950, Korea and Asia more broadly is very much seen by the JIC to be an American concern. Our concern is Europe, America's concern is looking at Asia, and we try and share all the intelligence. But it was known and it was recorded at the time that there were great difficulties in this relationship, that we, we knew in London that there was intelligence the Americans had which was not being shared. And so when the Korean War broke out, there was no warning in, in London that this was about to happen, but it was very much felt that there had been limited information available to the Americans which they had not shared. And it would only be the, the kind of coalescing factor of uh, a war in Asia and the threat of communism there that really began to bring America and Britain back into line, I think. Well, and the problem 
of the Cold War and intelligence is very different than the, during the Second World War. I mean, the nature of the beast is, is very different. Um, we had a very good, both the Americans, the British, the joint, uh, the, the Allies, had a very good uh, grasp on what the German capabilities were, German intentions during the war. We had penetrated them on different levels. We had a good idea through signals intelligence and other kinds that uh, we had a pretty good handle on what the German war machine was looking at, the German political system. That almost switches completely during the Cold War. How different is the intelligence problem against the Soviet Union as compared to the Germans in the Second World War? It's an interesting question, and, and I think to their credit, it, it's something which the chiefs of staff and other senior customers of the Jarity reports never really uh, fell into. You know, they had almost complete coverage, as you say, of Nazi Germany and almost complete lack of coverage of the Soviet Union, particularly the senior bits of what was going on in the Kremlin. Um, at no point, I think, were the JRC ever expected to emulate the wartime successes. Uh, and a number of their papers would often begin with caveats. We have limited intelligence. We have no intelligence. So those reading them, to an extent, would have known that there was very limited coverage. Uh, but one of the areas, I think, where the JRC did play a role, and where I think the book does contain lots of new information which is not revealed before, is really the JRC's role as manager of the intelligence community much more broadly in the United Kingdom. So one of its uh, great roles in the post-war period, once the Soviet Union became the primary focus in 46-47, was to argue for greater resources, was to be involved with methods to improve intelligence collection capabilities, because it was recognised that you could not produce good analysis without good collection. And so I think they were successful to an extent by the early 1950s in, in increasing uh, not only budgets, but also intelligence coverage. Americans have a, a tendency, and I'm certainly guilty of this, of uh, looking at the Cold War as a, you know, this bipolar world where you know, it's America, the Soviets, and then everybody else is kind of thrown in there. Um, and, you know, and unfortunately, that, that's, that's all too common. Um, but for the British in this situation, I almost feel as though uh, the job of the JIC is much harder because uh, you not only have to play with the question about what are the Soviets going to do, but there's still that question about what are the Americans going to do? Uh, because the time period we're talking about here from 46, 47 through 56, through the end of this book, is a time of pretty monumental historic events, one after the other, from the Truman Doctrine and the Marshall Plan to 49 with China and the Soviets getting the bomb, to Korea in the 50s, you know, all the way through Suez and the Hungarian crisis. I mean, this is just event after event after event that in many cases are American-guided events or created events, and in many cases the Soviets and the British have to kind of play, not in the middle because they're certainly on the American side, on the Allied side, but in some cases they're as surprised by what the Americans are doing as they are what the Soviets are doing. Is that an accurate way of looking at things? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, there are several aspects to that. I think on the question of surprise, the, the, the clearest example is to do with the Korean War, I think. And in London, uh, once the UN forces led by General MacArthur um, get involved, the, the big question is, well, where, how far will General MacArthur go? Will he stop at the 38th parallel, the, the border, in a sense, between North and South? Or will he push over the border? Um, the chiefs of staff in London didn't know what MacArthur was going to do. The JIC certainly didn't know what he was going to do. And there was great concern, and you can see it in the, the, the minutes of their meetings, saying, well, you know, we don't know what the Americans are going to do. How can we produce intelligence assessments not knowing what our own side is going to do? On a broader level, uh, I think 
one of the things I try to convey in the book, which I, I don't know how well it comes across, is trying to say, well, you know, the, the chapters are based on case studies, but at the same time, at any one point, the JIC was looking at a whole number of different topics and regions going on. Um, at Suez, for instance, in October 1956, as the military got involved, the JIC actually were much more concerned with what was going on in Hungary and the uprising. And so what I have tried to do, I hope, is show that this was a committee which had a worldwide remit. Its interests were global. It had to uh, rely on intelligence liaison with a number of partners, but principally uh, Canada, Australia, America, and New Zealand. But it had to try and coordinate everything that was going on. And as you said, it had a number of regional committees and a number of umbrella organizations below that. But the American relationship was always the most important but there were certainly gaps in what was known the Americans were doing at times. I'm going to ask you about three different case studies that you, we've talked about in the book. Um, the first is you know, near and dear to my heart, and this is tracking the Soviet bomb. Um, in, in, from my perspective, looking at things from the American prism, um, I, I knew this, but I don't think about it very often, the fact that the British were vulnerable to a Soviet attack long before the United States. Even once the bomb is built, the United States is not particularly worried about bombs falling on Washington and New York because there's no delivery capability on the Soviet side. They don't develop that till years later. Not so much for the British. I mean, mm. the Soviets had the capability of putting a, a weapon on target, certainly London, somewhere else, much earlier than they did the United States. And this puts the British in a, in a situation where perhaps they have even more of a dog in the fight when it comes to tracking the development of Soviet nuclear program. Yeah, and that reflects the prominence of Macmillan's comments at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis to Kennedy saying, you know, now you know what we've lived with since 1945. Um, if you go back to 1945, you're right. London was always within target of, of a potential Russian bomb. Um, in the aftermath of the Second World War and the bombs on Hiroshima, the Chiefs of Staff uh, had a, a diagram produced with Trafalgar Square at the centre saying what would happen if Hiroshima bomb was dropped on Trafalgar Square and how far would the damage go? It's interesting as an aside to see the sort of landmarks they put on the map, cricket grounds and big department store. But London was always felt to be uh, within range of the Soviet Union. And, but, uh, and I think this uh, at some levels did dictate how the JIC saw the threat. Um, but on the, at the same time, it, they never really saw the, the Russians as launching a nuclear war. The, the view which was maintained throughout this period and, um, and goes beyond 1956 was that war would only come about as a result of miscalculation. Yes, the Russians would resort to subversive tactics elsewhere. They would try to uh, politically outmaneuver Britain and the West in, in various other countries. But actually, they would not resort to open conflict. So proxy conflicts became the norm, as you say. Korea was the classic example. This is the classic question about capabilities versus intentions. I mean, it's, it's not, you knew what capabilities they had, but were, were they going to start this kind of a war? What were their intentions? And that's always that question uh, that's, that intelligence agencies have to deal with. Capabilities are easy. You can count tanks, you can count planes, you can understand science. Intentions, of course, is always the most difficult. Ab absolutely, and I think one of the great difficulties was that there, there were no good sources of intelligence uh, on what the thinking was in the Kremlin. But in order to try and assume what was going on, you had to assume that the other side was rational. But the JIC for a long period saw the, those in the Kremlin as irrational actors. So how can you try and produce an assessment when you think the other side will act irrationally? Uh, Stalin's period, this was, the, this was the view on and off. Khrushchev particularly was seen to be a very uh, unstable character that you couldn't really predict in any way or other. 
And making matters even more difficult, perhaps, for the British was the fact that the Americans, uh, certainly the American intelligence agencies, were throwing out radical and overstated assessments of Soviet capabilities. Of course, this is the famous bomber and missile gap, uh, based almost entirely on domestic politics in the United States, whether it was the Air Force wanted more money. Uh, did they see this for what it was from Britain? And did it make their life far more difficult? It's an interesting question. Part of it comes down at a much broader level as to the, the nature of the JRC. The, the JRC was based on the cabinet system of government, in other words, collective decision-making. So any assessment produced by the JRC was based on consensus, and so there was no such thing as a dissenting footnote. Translate that to what goes on in Washington at this time, uh, and it's a total opposite. You have an assessment, but you're allowed to have dissenting footnotes, and often in these assessments of Soviet capabilities, uh, the U.S. Air Force in particular would offer a dissenting opinion. Um, the bomber gap, as you say, as we now know, is this great figment of imagination. And there's a lovely quote in the book from uh, the JRC talking about this bomber gap, saying that it's, it's uh, formed by powerful vested interests in Washington. How did that translate into assessments? Well, I think the JRC always saw itself as much closer to the CIA's view of things as opposed to the different arms of the U.S. military. The CIA, I think, was very much seen as its closest ally, its nearest uh, analogue in a sense. And so I don't think the JRC actually was that concerned by these inflated assessments. They knew they were inflated, they just decided to, to ignore them when they're making their own assessments. That's certainly the impression from the papers. Whether there is more that went on, we don't know, but certainly that's what the papers convey. So the Middle East is, well, unfortunately will be a topic of conversation for quite some time. Um, and this is an interesting period in the history of the Middle East at the very beginning of the Cold War, uh, particularly when it comes to the British relationship with the Middle East. Uh, during the Second World War, the, the United States hadn't had much of a relationship with the Middle East. It had been almost entirely a British and somewhat a French uh, area of the world, certainly since the First World War. And the Americans come in during the war. Uh, all that oil really made a difference to it. Uh, uh, and in many cases, the United States becomes uh, more influential over the Middle East than the British had. Um, but the British certainly had interests in the Middle East. And one of these was Israel, certainly, in the Israel-Palestine question in 1948. And then the Soviets uh, not leaving Iran, not leaving Persia, uh, and, and you know, threatening to bring the Cold War to the Middle East. Can you talk a little bit about that case study, that dynamic? Yeah, it's an interesting one. The JIC was aware, and I think it's through Chiefs of Staff planning, that the Middle East was seen as a, a really important strategic point for the United Kingdom. On the one hand, it was a great military strategic point, but on the other hand, the raw commodities, oil, were seen to be uh, hugely important for Britain's economic uh, progress. So, as you say, in a various number of countries, Britain was involved, um, partly because it had colonial interests, partly because it had economic interests, partly because it had military interests, and, and often those various strands uh, combined and collided. I think in the Middle East, in much the same way as in uh, Asia, actually, and in Europe, in, in, in fact, the JRC often saw Moscow's hand behind everything. So particularly in uh, the Middle East, as the colonial powers began to disengage themselves with what was going on, uh, any opposition to British rule, whether it was uh, British outgoing rule or current British rule, was really seen to be Moscow-inspired. Whereas we now know that lots of these things were essentially nationalistic uprisings against the colonial powers 
Uh, for the JIC, nothing like this could emerge if Moscow wasn't somehow involved. So it's all proxy conflict everywhere. It's all Moscow's hands everywhere. Would you see an interesting analogy, perhaps, to Latin America for the United States? Is, you know, seeing any kind of even remotely left of center government as having Moscow's fingerprints all over it, and not just a country that wanted to live without foreign rule for the first time in its history. And that leads to great problems. Uh, when Mossadegh first comes to power in Iran, Britain is really faced, faced with the problem. On the one hand, they don't like his nationalistic views, his uh, positive stance towards nationalizing oil and therefore uh, cutting off Britain's access. But at the same time, it's very much seen as he is the most powerful stalwart against communism. So what do you do? What's the greater of the evils? Is it to stop the communists getting in or is it to have someone who is friendly to British interests? Speaking of nationalism, what great segue there. Uh, let's talk about Suez, uh, because I think the fascinating case study, uh, not only in the book, but you know, overall, uh, when I taught diplomatic history, it was always the eye-opening case study, because most students had been trained by that point to think of the Soviets as the bad guy, the British, the Israelis, the French as the good guys, and there's very strange bedfellows when it comes to Suez, where the Americans come down, and I think you do a really good job in this book in, in Yes, they are on opposite sides of this issue, but they're still working closely together, uh, almost more behind the scenes than anything else to try to solve the Suez crisis without actually joining up with the Soviet Union against the British, the Israelis, and the French. Yeah, Suez is the longest chapter in the book. It's, it's twice as long as any other chapter. Um, it's the one I struggled with most in terms of methodology, in terms of, you know, it's had the most written about it. What new was there that I could say? In fact, there was a lot that was new that I could say, but equally it's the chapter that was uh, had the most classification issues. And I think what emerges from the chapter, what I hope emerges from the chapter, is that the Anglo-American relationship to do Suez specifically is much more complicated and much less linear than uh, people necessarily think. So I think you have to understand it at various levels, and that's the way I've tried to uh, write about it is it, you can look at it at the politician's level you know the, the John Foster Dulles Selwyn Lloyd the foreign secretary uh, secretary of state levels you can look at it in terms of uh, foreign office state department levels as to what was going on you can look at it at military levels as to the planning that was going on but also I think you need to look at it in terms of the intelligence level you know what level of support was there going on there's a nice quote in the book where Roger Makins, the British ambassador in Washington, uh, warns those in London to be careful to make policy with the right Dulles brother. In other words, they should not avoid making policy with Alan Dulles, uh, director of the CIA, but they should go for John Foster Dulles, the State Department, uh, the Secretary of State. So I think uh, I think it's it, it's a much more complicated uh, question than than perhaps has been thought of in the past. Can you indicate that the JIC is somewhat ignored or even marginalized during this time period, certainly from the British military, but also from policymakers. Uh, why ignore a committee that is as important and as influential as the JIC during this crisis? It's a good question. Of course, if government works properly, they should not be ignored. And as a keen advocate of the JIC, I think this is a, a terrible failing of government. But I think you have to... There are several answers. The, the JIC's involvement in Suez was various. On the one hand, it was involved with the purely military aspects. It was looking at how well guarded with the code words attached to the operations, you know, much like D-Day, making sure that no one knew about British military plans. But also the committee produced some really very good assessments uh, looking at things like, well, if Britain gets involved militarily 
in Egypt, what will the impact be on neighbouring regions and their views towards the UK? You know, will this lead to a massive unrest in the region towards the UK? The JIC's assessments are very good, but they, as you say, were not read. Um, and I think that they were not read because essentially, although they were avoiding policy prescription, the message probably would have been that war is actually a very bad thing. They didn't say that explicitly. But the implication was very much if you get involved militarily in the region, it will have a bad impact for Britain's standing uh, regionally. And that, of course, was not the message that Anthony Eason, the Prime Minister, wanted to be heard. He was very much keen on getting rid of NASA, as were other elements of the government. And so the JIC's policies really, uh, sorry, JIC's assessments would not have been very useful for his policies. Well, the book is fascinating. Uh, again, it's the official history of the Joint Intelligence Committee, Volume 1, by Michael S. Goodman. Now, if you go on Amazon and type in Michael Goodman, there's like 40 of you. So the middle initial S, that's where you can find this book, middle of June 2014. Uh, it's where you can also find many of uh, Dr. Goodman's other books. I highly recommend Spying on the Nuclear Bear. Uh, and, and other books that he's written are just as good. Uh, but this one's coming out fairly soon. It's from Rutledge Publishing. Uh, and Dr. Goodman, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.